Section 33 of the History of Greece. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. The History of Greece by J. B. Berry. Chapter 9 The Athenian Empire under Pericles. Section 3 Conclusion of Peace with Persia. The warfare of recent years had been an enormous strain on the resources of Athens, and it was found necessary to increase the burden of tribute imposed on her allies. She wanted a relief from the strain, but after the expedition of Pericles three or four years elapsed before peace was concluded. During that interval there seems to have been, by mutual consent of the combatants, a cessation from military operations. Lacedaemon and Argos first concluded a treaty of peace for thirty years, and then Seamen, who had returned to Athens, negotiated a truce which was fixed for five years between the Athenians and Peloponnesians. As soon as the peace was arranged, Athens and her allies were able to resume their warfare against Persia, and to no man could that warfare be more safely or fitly entrusted than to the hero of the Eurymedon River. Pericles may have been well pleased to use Simon's military experience, and an amicable arrangement seems to have been made, Simon undertaking not to interfere with the policy of Pericles. Gossip said that Simon's sister had much to do with bringing to pass the reconciliation. Quote, the charms, as well as the intrigues of Elpinis, appear to have figured conspicuously in the memoirs of Athenian biographers. They were employed by one party as a means of calumniating Simon, by the other for discrediting Pericles. Women played no part in the history of Athena's city. The Phoenician fleet, which had put down the Egyptian rebellion, was afterwards sent to re-establish the authority of Artaxerxes in the island of Cyprus, and accordingly Simon sailed thither with a squadron of two hundred vessels. He detached sixty to help a princelet who had succeeded in defying the Persians in the fens of the delta of the Nile, for the Athenians, even after their calamity, had not entirely abandoned the thought of Egyptian conquest. Then he laid siege to Sitian. It was the last enterprise of the man who had conducted the war against Persia ever since the battle of Mycale. He died during the blockade and his death marks the beginning of a new period in which hostilities between Greek and Persian slumber. But one final success was gained. Raising the siege of Sitian because there was no food, the fleet arrived off Salamis, and the Greeks gained a double victory by sea and land over the Phoenician and Cilician ships. But this victory did not encourage the Athenians to continue the war. We have no glimpse of the counsels of their statement at this moment, but the facts of the situation enable us to understand their resolution to make peace with the great king. The events of recent years had proved to them that it was beyond the strength of Athens to carry on war at the same time in any effectual way, with the common enemy of all the Greeks, and with her rivals among the Greeks themselves. It was, therefore, necessary to choose between peace with Persia and peace in Greece. But an enduring peace in Greece could only be purchased by the surrender of those successes which Athens had lately gained. Corinth would never acquiesce until she had won back her old predominant position in her western gulf. So long as she was hemmed in, as Athens had hemmed her in, she would inevitably seize any favorable hour to strike for her release. Some Athenian politicians would have been ready to retreat from the positions which had been recently seized, and of which the occupation was most galling to Corinth. 
but Pericles, who had won these positions, was a strong imperialist. The aim of his statesmanship was to increase the Athenian empire, and to spread the political influence of Athens within the borders of Greece. He was unwilling to let any part of her empire go, for the sake of earning new successes against the barbarian. The death of Simon, who had been the soul of the Persian war, may have helped Pericles to carry through his determination to bring that war to an end. And the great king on his side was disposed to negotiate, for the Greek victory of Cyprian Salamis had been followed by a revolt of Megabyzus, the general who had quelled the insurrection of Egypt. Accordingly, peace was made with Persia. There is a dark mist about the negotiations, so dark that it has been questioned whether a formal treaty was ever concluded. But there can be no reasonable doubt that Athens came to an understanding with Artaxerxes, and that peace ensued, and it is equally certain that there was a definite contract by which Persia undertook not to send ships of war into the Aegean, and Athens gave a similar pledge securing the coasts of the Persian Empire against attack. An embassy from Athens and her allies must have waited on the great king at Susa, and the terms of the arrangement must have been put in writing. But, on the other hand, there was no treaty as between two Greek states. The great king would never have consented to treat either with a Greek city or a federation of Greek cities as an equal, and he certainly did not stoop to the humiliation of formally acknowledging the independence of the Greek cities of Asia. It was enough that he should graciously promise to make certain concessions. But whatever were the diplomatic forms of the agreement, both parties meant peace, and peace was maintained. It has been called the Peace of Callias, and we have a record which makes it probable that the chief ambassador was Callias, the richest man at Athens, and the husband of Simon's sister. The first act in the strife of Greece and Persia thus closes. All the cities of Hellas which had come under barbarian sway had been reunited to the world of free Hellenic states, except in one outlying corner. The Greek cities of Cyprus were left to struggle with the Phoenicians as best they might, and the Phoenicians soon got the upper hand and held it for many years. They tried to extirpate Greek civilization from the island, but Greek civilization was a hardy growth, and we shall hereafter see Greek dynasties again in power. Section 4. Athenian Reverses. The Thirty Years' Peace. The peace with Persia, however, was not followed by further Athenian expansion within the defined limits. On the contrary, some of the most recent acquisitions of the Athenian Empire began to fall away. Orchomenus and Chaeronea and some other towns in western Boeotia were seized by exiled oligarchs, and it was necessary for Athens to intervene promptly. The general Tolmides went forth with a wholly inadequate number of troops. He took and garrisoned Chaeronea, but did not attempt Orchomenus. On his way home he was set upon by the exiles from Orchomenus, and some others, in the neighborhood of Coronea, and defeated. He was himself slain, many of the hoplites were taken prisoners, and the Athenians, in order to obtain their release, resigned Boeotia. Thus the battle of Coronea undid the work of Enophyta. Athens had little reason to regret this loss, for dominion in Boeotia was not really conducive to the consolidation of her empire. To maintain control over the numerous city-states of the Boeotian country would have been a constant strain on her military resources, which would hardly have been remunerative. The loss of Boeotia was followed by the loss of Phocis and Locris. It was strange enough that Phocis should fall away. A few years before the Phocians had taken possession of Delphi. 
The Spartans had sent an army to rescue the shrine from their hands, and give it back to the Delphians. But as soon as the Spartans had gone, an Athenian army came, led by Pericles, and restored the sanctuary to the Phocians. It was a sacred war, but so conducted that it did not make a breach of the five years' truce. Yet, although their position at Delphi seemed to depend on the support of Athens, the Phocians now deserted her alliance. The change was due to an oligarchical reaction in the Phocian cities, consequent on the oligarchical rising in Boeotia. The defeat of Coronea dimmed the prestige of Athenian arms, and still more serious results ensued. Euboea and Megara revolted at the same moment. Here, too, oligarchical parties were at work. Pericles, who was a general, immediately went to Euboea with the regiments of seven of the tribes, while those of the remaining three marched into the Megarid. But he had no sooner reached the island than he was overtaken by the news that the garrison in the city of Megara had been massacred, and that a Peloponnesian army was threatening Attica. He promptly returned, and his first object was to unite his forces with the troops in the Megarid, which were under the command of Andocides. But King Pleistoanax and the Lacedaemonians were between them commanding the east coast road. Andocides was compelled to return to Attica by creeping round the corner of the Corinthian Gulf at Agostheni and passing through Boeotia. The troops were guided by a man of Megara named Pythian, and the gratitude of the three tribes, quote, whom he saved by leading them from Pagae through Boeotia to Athens, was recorded on his funeral monument. The stone has survived, and the verses written upon it are a touching reminiscence of a moment of great peril. But when the whole army united in Attica, the peril was past. The return of Pericles had disconcerted King Pleistoanax, who commanded the Lacedaemonians, and having advanced only as far as the Thriasian plain he withdrew, deeming it useless to strike at Athens. Pericles was thus set free to carry out the reduction of Euboea. Histea, the city in the north of the island, was most hardly dealt with, probably because her resistance was most obstinate. The people were driven out, their territory annexed to Athens, and the new settlement of Oreos took the place of Histea. In other cases the position of each state was settled by an agreement, and the arrangements which were made with Calchas were still preserved in stone. The alarm of the Athenians is reflected in reductions of tribute which they allowed to their subject states. They feared that the example of Euboea might spread. The truce of five years was now approaching its end, and peace was felt to be so indispensable that they resigned themselves to purchasing a more durable treaty by considerable concessions. They had lost Megara, but they still held the two ports Nicaea and Pagae. Thessi, as well as Achaea, they agreed to surrender, and on this basis a peace was concluded for thirty years between the Athenians and the Peloponnesians. All the allies of both sides were enumerated in the treaty, and it was stipulated that neither Athens nor Lacedaemon was to admit into her alliance an ally of the other, while neutral states might join whichever alliance they chose. It was a humiliating peace for Athens, and perhaps would not have been concluded but for the alarm which had been caused by the inroad of the Peloponnesians into Attic territory. While the loss of Boeotia was probably a gain, and the evacuation of Achaea might be lightly endured, the loss of the Megarid was a serious blow, for while Athens held the long walls and the passes of Geronea, she had complete immunity from Peloponnesian invasions of her soil. Henceforth, Attica was always exposed to such aggressions. Besides this, her position in the Crissaean Gulf was greatly weakened. The attempt which she had made to win a land empire had succeeded only for a brief space. The lesson was that she must devote her whole energy to maintaining her maritime dominion. 
it was a gloomy moment for the Athenians, and it must have required all the tact and eloquence of Pericles to restore the shaken confidence and revive the drooping spirits. Euboea, at all events, was safe, and men might look back over sixty years to that victory which had been won by their ancestors, in a critical hour, over a joint attack of the Boeotians and Chalcidians. On that occasion a tithe of the spoil had been dedicated to Athena. Pericles now set up a bronze chariot with this tithe, and so associated the earlier victory with his own. The parallel was close, for the rebellion of Euboea had mainly been instigated by the Boeotian oligarchs, who freed their own land from Athenian control. The marble base on which the chariot stood, on the Acropolis, has been found, and a few letters of the inscribed verses which Herodotus read and copied can be made out. The recollection that the sons of the Athenians quenched the insolence of the Boeotians, as these verses have it, was indeed the only consolation that could be offered for the defeat of Coronea. While he made the most of the reduction of Euboea, Pericles may also have dwelt on the prospects of the Attic Sea Empire. He may have elated them by words such as he is reported to have used at a later moment of despondency, quote, Of the two divisions of the world accessible to man, the land and the sea, there is one of which you are absolute masters, and have or may have the dominion to any extent you please. Neither the great king nor any nation on earth can hinder a navy like yours from penetrating whithersoever you choose to sail. End quote. Thucydides, Book Two, Chapter Sixty Two. Section five. The Imperialism of Pericles and the Opposition to His Policy. The cities of the Athenian alliance might have claimed, when the Persian war was ended, that the confederacy should be broken up, and that they should resume their original and rightful freedom. The fair answer to this claim would have been that peace had indeed come, but that it would endure only so long as a power was maintained strong enough to stand up against the might of Persia. Dissolve the confederacy, and the cities will severally and speedily become the prey of the barbarian. But in any case, the confederacy had become an empire, and Athens was in the full career of an ambitious imperialist state. The tributes which she imposed on her subjects were probably not oppressive, and were constantly revised. When the five years' truce was about to be concluded, she reduced the tribute which had been increased under the stress of war to its former amount. She did not force her own coinage upon her subjects. Every city might have its own mint, and most of them had. But there was much that was galling in her empire, to communities in which the love of freedom was strongly developed. The revolt and reduction of Euboea showed in its undisguised shape the rule of might. It must, however, be remembered, in judging of the feelings of the cities toward their mistress, that in nearly every city there were an oligarchical and a democratical party. The democracy was supported by Athens, and was generally friendly to her. The oligarchs were always on the watch for an opportunity to rebel. And for this reason a revolt is not in itself evidence that Athens was unpopular among her allies. The Carian and Lycian cities began to fall away after the peace with Persia, but most of them were only superficially Hellenized, and Athens let them go, not thinking it worth while to take measures for retaining her control of them. Pericles had been the guide of the Athenian people in the recent war. His counsels had directed their imperial policy. But that policy had not been unchallenged. His leadership had not been unopposed. There was a strong oligarchical party at Athens which not only disliked the democracy of her city, but arraigned their empire. 
Most of this party attacked the imperialist policy of Pericles purely from party motives, and for the purpose of attacking him, but there was one man at least who may claim the credit of having honestly espoused the cause of the allied cities against the unscrupulous selfishness of his own city. This was Thucydides, the son of Milesius, a man who had connections with many of the allies. He maintained that the tribute should be reserved exclusively for the purpose for which it was levied, the defense of Greece against Persia, and that Athens had no right to spend it on other things, especially things which concerned herself alone and did not benefit the cities. It was an injustice that these cities should have to defray any part of the costs of an Athenian campaign in Boeotia or a new temple in Athens. This was a just view. But justice is never entirely compatible with the growth of a country to political greatness, and Pericles was resolved to make his country great at all hazards. For this purpose, his policy toward the allied cities was, in a phrase which seems to have been his own, to keep them well in hand. It is pleasant to find that voices were raised against his unscrupulous imperialism. The more extreme section of the party which supported Thucydides would not have hesitated to betray Athens into the hands of her foes for the sake of overthrowing the democracy. They had tried to do this at the time of the Battle of Tanagra. Much less would they have scrupled to give secret help to the oligarchical parties which worked against Athenian rule in the subject cities. Oligarchy had raised its head in many places during the five years' truce. Oligarchical movements had led to the loss of Boeotia. Oligarchical movements had caused the revolts of Megara and Eubea. Oligarchy had even prevailed in Phocis. There can be little doubt that this widespread oligarchical activity had its echo in Athens, and that these years the party opposed to Pericles was loud and aggressive. He met that opposition with remarkable dexterity. He introduced a new policy, which, while it was thoroughly imperialist, was so popular at Athens that his adversaries were silenced. Among the measures which Pericles initiated to strengthen the empire of his city, none was more important in its results than the system of settling Athenian citizens abroad. Like measures of many great statesmen, this policy affected the solution of two diverse problems. The colonies which were thus sent to different parts of the empire served as garrisons in the lands of subject allies, and they also helped to provide for part of the superfluous population of Athens. The first of these Periclean clerishies was established in the Thracian Chersonese, under the personal supervision of Pericles himself. Lands were bought from the allied cities of the peninsula, and a thousand Athenian citizens, chiefly of the poor and unemployed, were allotted farms, and assigned to the several cities. The payment for the land was made in the shape of a reduction of the tribute. At the same time Pericles restored the wall which Miltiades had built across the isthmus to protect the city against the Thracians. In view of the rising power of the Thracian prince Terrace, this precaution was wise. The outsettlements in the Chersonese, which were probably followed by outsettlements in Lemnos and Imbros, the island warders of the gate of the Propontis, were the most important of all. The same policy was at the same time adopted in Euboea and some of the islands of the Aegean, and in a mysterious place, the Thracian Brea, which probably lay west of the Strymon. The original act of the colonization of Brea has been preserved, and the provision that all the settlers shall belong to the two poorest classes of the people on the Salonian classification illustrates the character of the Periclean clerishes. The policy was naturally popular at Athens, since it provided for thousands of unemployed who cumbered the streets, and perhaps it may be regarded as one of the happiest strokes devised by Pericles for increasing his ascendancy and confounding his opponents. 
but it was a policy which was highly unpopular among the allies, in whose territories the settlements were made, and it gave perhaps more dissatisfaction than any other feature of Athenian rule. Most Athenian citizens were naturally allured by a policy of expansion which made their city great and powerful without exacting heavy sacrifices from themselves. The day had not yet come when they were unwilling to undertake military service, and they were content as long as the cost of maintaining the empire did not tax their purses. The empire furthered the extension of their trade and increased their prosperity. The average Athenian burgher was not hindered by his own full measure of freedom from being willing to press, with as little scruple as any tyrant, the yoke of his city upon the necks of other communities. So long as the profits of empire were many and its burdens light, the Athenian democracy would feel few searchings of heart in adopting the imperialism of Pericles. That imperialism was indeed of a lofty kind. The aim of the statesman who guided the destinies of Athens in these days of her greatness was to make her the queen of Hellas, to spread her sway on the mainland as well as beyond the seas, and to make her political influence felt in those states which it would have been unwise, and perhaps impossible, to draw within the borders of her empire. The full achievement of this ideal would have meant the union of all the Greeks, a union held together by the power of Athens, but having a natural support in a common religion, common traditions, common customs, and a common language. Shortly before the loss of Boeotia through the defeat of Coronea, Athens addressed to Greece an open declaration of her Panhellenic ambition. She invited the Greek states to send representatives to an Hellenic Congress at Athens, for the purpose of discussing certain matters of common interest, to restore the temples which had been burned by the Persians, to pay the votive offerings which were due to the gods for the great deliverance, and to take common measures for clearing the seas of piracy. This was the program which Athens proposed to the consideration of Greece. The invitation did not go to the West, for the Italiates and Siceliots were not directly concerned in the Persian War, but it went to all the cities of old Greece, and to the cities and islands which belonged to the Athenian Empire. If the Congress had taken place, it would have inaugurated an Amphictyony of all Hellas, and Athens would have been the centre of this vast religious union. It was a sublime project, but it could not be. It was not to be expected that Sparta would fall in with a project which, however noble and pious it sounded, might tempt or help Athens to strike out new and perilous paths of ambition and aggrandizement. The Athenian envoys were rebuffed in the Peloponnesus, and the plan fell through. Immediately after this, the revolution in Boeotia deprived Athens of her empire on the mainland. End of section 33